Hello and welcome to another episode of Material Matters with Grant Gibson. The show is four years old now, but for listeners who might be new to all this, the idea is I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about a material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. My guest this week is the Dutch product and furniture designer Inika Hans. Inika originally studied art at Arnhem before switching to design. In 1993, she moved to London's Royal College of Art and subsequently worked for Habitat as a furniture designer. By the end of the decade, she was focusing more on her own work. And since then, clients have included Arend, Arco, Itala, SCP and Magis. Currently, she splits her time between Arnhem and Berlin, where she's professor in the product and fashion design department of UDK University. Most recently, she has created Rex, a sustainable and recyclable chair for startup company Circuform, which has won a slew of awards, including Product Design of the Year at the Dutch Design Awards. As you'll hear, the product has a bit of history and is a piece that perhaps points the way forward for the furniture industry. Inika, thank you very, very much for doing this. Yes, it's a pleasure to be with you, finally. Yes, I mean, I don't know how much of this listeners need to know, but it's been a long journey to do this. We've had microphones stuck in customs, things not being delivered. It's literally taken four months and about 70 emails for us to get together. (laughs) Yes. So it's a joy to see you. (laughs) I mean, congratulations on all these awards. I wonder if they came as a surprise or did you immediately think you're onto something when you created Rex? Well, yes, I think I was onto something when I created Rex. But, you know, if you see the final result, then send some pictures into the world, what you usually do if chairs are finished. I kind of thought, well, this might look like another chair. So maybe we need to do something about communication. What is so special about this chair? Since it, there is something special about it, we focused a lot on the communication of that specialism. And that's what we communicated very well in pictures. Yes. And I think that that was also a great help to getting across what Rex was actually about. We will talk about Rex yeah. in some detail shortly. Mm-hmm. But one of the things we try and do on this podcast is locate where you're talking from. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that you divide your time between Arnhem and Berlin. Mm -hmm. I suspect, but in fact, I know you're in Arnhem at the moment. Mm -hmm. But I'm guessing, judging by the blank wall behind you on this Zoom screen, that you're not in your studio. No. Where are you currently? I'm now at my home, but I was in my studio earlier. But it's a big hall. (laughs) And since we needed a not echoey space for this, I thought, let's move to my home. Well, very sensible. Let's cheat in that case. Mm -hmm. What does your studio look like? Can you describe how you work? Uh, It's a mix of a a studio space and a workshop space. It's a kind of a workshop space of about 100 square meters and a studio space of about 150. It's a a huge space. Yeah, it's big. It's enormous. But it has ended up more and more as a warehouse because there's also a lot of stuff that I've done over the years. And so there's also like 150 square meters of storage space in Mm. there. It's a lovely space. It's an old garage. It used to be a Toyota garage in the 70s in Holland and in Arnhem. And we managed to take it over about 15 years ago. And we built in some walls from old windows, very sustainable, and divided the space in three areas where basically the storage space is the buffer between the studio and the workshop space. So we have some silence and we don't hear a circular saw 
or welding mm. when you're working in the studio. Do you have that kind of equipment in your workshop in that case? Yes. There's a welding spot. There's mm. a circular saw. There's sanding machines. There's um, We even have a kiln to fire ceramics. Oh, wow. Oh. And do you have a big team? No, the team is really small at the moment. The last years have also changed. So it is a bit obscene to have such a big studio at the moment. Uh, I am sharing it now with my friend, my best friend, my husband, my boyfriend, whatever. He's an artist, so he makes enormous sculptures, so he uses it as well. But over the last, well, seven, eight years, my practice has changed a lot. I have moved myself back to London, and then I moved halfway to London, up to Berlin and Holland, which meant that this studio space is something that I'm really thinking about what to do with it at the moment. I used to have people working with me in the studio, and before COVID, I started already to work much more with people on a kind of online situation. I've worked with some of my assistants for like 12, 17 years, and some one guy's from France, but he's living somewhere else and in Holland. I usually work with him online, and that works really well. And the situation of having to make the models that I really did in the beginning a lot and where for which the workshop was also really necessary has changed as well because most of the time the companies that I work with would like to do the models themselves because in the end they also have to produce them. And then it is a bit silly to make these super professional models or one-to-one scale models in the workshops. So it is a bit of a, a think what to do with it. It's a luxury to have that space. Do you also have a place in Berlin? Yes. You have a studio there too? Yeah, small. That's super small, but right. it suits me really well. And it also makes me think if it is so necessary to have a big space. Yeah. The biggest problem is that there is a lot of storage at the moment. I'm like a bit like a young puppy that takes <laughs> everything home. Yes. <laughs> You've just designed too many projects. You know, I, I find it very difficult to throw things away. Yes. Yeah. I mean, in your CV, Inike, you describe yourself as a critical designer. Can we define that? What does critical design mean to you? I start most of the time with always questioning why. Why should I do this? What is the point of this? What is the importance of this? Criticizing the systems behind things. I'm not such a good designer that you ask me to make a sofa and then I'll come up with a sofa. Mm. I'm really much more looking at how society is changing, what do we need, what kind of products do we need. I think that all designers will say that they are critical. I don't know. I hope that. I'm not such a good person designer to design a pink cushion for your sofa or something like that. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm really more and more interested also in change the systems behind how products come into the world. You know, if we, if we want to get to a circular economy, we might have to also rethink economic systems. And these kind of things I am very interested in as well as a designer, how to deal with that and how you can influence that. I mean, that's quite interesting because I wonder if your thought process over the years has changed. I mean, were you thinking that, for instance, when you were designing an award-winning garlic press? Uh, yes, not uh, about <laughs> not about an economic system, but right. uh, yes, I was thinking why should you know? The question was actually uh, to this was for a company called Royal VKB, Royal VKB, and they invited people to think about objects for the kitchen and. 
basically, if you look at garlic presses, it's basically people, if they start to design it, it's another squeezer. And I thought, well, it's all very interesting. But the problem with the garlic presses is that there's always stuff in it. Even if I have a dishwasher, there's still a lot of stuff in these garlic presses. So maybe I should design one that is easy to clean. And one that if I have my hands to it, it's also made from a steel that takes away the smell of garlic presses. So I really did think like, if you do a garlic press, what do you actually need? The first question was like, why? What is a garlic press? What is wrong with the garlic presses that we know? Mm. Mm. And how important are materials or have materials been to your process? It is. Yeah, it's always been. You know, I've been working with new technologies, which are maybe not, you know, now it's not so flabbergasting, but I've been working with laser cutting wood in the early 2000s when laser cutting was still a novelty or worked on CNC chairs in the 90s where the CNC routering machines were also a novelty still and where the word dog bones, what we know now in CNC routering is totally accepted where we hadn't got a clue about how to deal with certain connections in CNC routed uh, materials. Yeah, so I, I'm, I'm triggered by new materials, new technologies. I'm not an expert in super high-tech stuff, but I'm also very much interested in how our lives change and how our ways of living are changing. A very, you know, example that I often use is 50 years ago, we were all coming home and eating as a family at the table at six o'clock or five o'clock. And nowadays we come home and the father is at the football game, the son still has to do something else, and we eat in front of the television. So it means that our lives change, and it means also that we have to design for that in different ways. Interesting things nowadays is that we order so much online, it means more or less that furniture designers are, are asked to design furniture that can be delivered through a letterbox, you know? The way we live, the way our society changes means a lot for how we, how I as a designer have to design and what I design. Mm. I mean, I was interested to learn that you've been working with recycled plastic for quite a long time, really. Yes. Because obviously Rex, we'll get into his recycled plastic, but you were working with recycled plastic in the late 90s when you did a piece called Ordinary, yes. which is a square top table and, and stools made from wood effect recycled plastic. Yes. And the interesting thing then was also, I found that material because it was used in the waterworks in Holland along the canals. Mm. And it had a very nice pattern on it, which looked like a wood grain. So I made furniture out of it and I liked it so much that it didn't look like recycled plastic. I know at that year or two years before, there was a Jane Hatfield in England who had been working with Made of Waste. We've just done a podcast about Made of Waste or, or Smile Plastics, technically. Yes. I thought that was really super nice. But the material that I found was a material that did not look so clearly as uh, recycled plastic because it looked like one solid kind of plank and the wood grains uh, that are that what looked like a wood grain came about because the plastic was poured into some kind of tube and this slow flowing pattern made a kind of wood grain structure. So people didn't really recognize it as plastic and still don't sometimes. And the funny thing then was that people say, oh, well, that's nice. It's plastic and it can stay outdoor and it's so heavy and it doesn't blow away from your garden. And nowadays people say, oh, it's recycled plastic. How interesting. 
So the perception of plastic can be recycled has also changed mm. a lot over the years. Shall we talk about this fascinating chair of yours, Rex? Well, if you, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, that you've designed for Circuform. Uh, it featured in the Material Matters Fair last September, mm-hmm. and as we mentioned, has won a fistful of awards. But it has a bit of history, doesn't it? It's based on a design you worked on for Arund over a decade ago. Yes. How come it took so long to get to the market? Well, uh, that has a long story. The situation was that I had at one point a conversation with the director of Arendt and he asked me what I thought about Arendt and uh, I uh, told him all kind of things and I thought it was very odd that they had these fantastic chairs from Friese Kramer, which is in Holland, the kind of chair that everyone in Holland has been sitting on. And... Um, that is a kind of icon, but the type of furniture that they were doing at the time when I spoke to this guy was very much like what any Tom, Dick and Harry does, kind of office furniture. They were actually in competition with other companies to make furniture for banks and they were both developing the same stuff and then the other party would get it and they would just bring out the same thing where I thought that's totally pointless because the Mm. other party has already won the competition, so why bring out the same stuff? Why not focus on your own DNA and bring new furniture out from that? Okay, so I was very critical to him, being a critical designer. (laughs) Uh, And I I just thought I was invited for a cup of tea. And then he said, well, I have a very uh, good proposal. You make the next chair for us. So then I proposed three chairs to them. Uh, To be honest, I focused also on a kind of laser tube chair because they had just bought a complete new installation for laser tubes. And one of them was a recycled plastic, which had to do with the fact that in the 1950s, Friese Kramer and Wim Rietveld, the son of Gerrit Rietveld, had been working at Arendt exploring new plastics and i thought well maybe we have to look at the plastics of our age and time and let's look at these new recyclable plastics that are injection molded and then aaron chose that chair and then they made some molds but it's a long story actually Uh, it, it basically it came down to the fact that they never thought that i would make an industrial produced chair they basically thought that i would do a kind of concept chair and that was it and then suddenly it hit off and it got all kind of awards in Holland because they thought it was marvelous that Arendt finally did a kind of chair which had their DNA. Mm. And all kind of companies started to order it and then they couldn't deliver because they had invested in a very bad mold. Ah. So this was really bad for me because I finally could show that I was able to do an injection molded chair and technological stuff. There's an interesting quote from you, which I think I read in On Office, possibly, or maybe Disegno, where you wrote that it was important because it proved a woman could do an injection-molded chair. Oh, yes, I said that once, yeah. There are not so many women who can do injection-molded chairs, uh, Why is that? Grant. Why not? I don't know. Maybe men are better in technical things. Interesting. Interesting. I don't know. I don't know. At least for me, it was a very big thing. And when it didn't mm. work with Arendt, I was super disappointed because it was also something that if you do one of these chairs, it could be a kind of step for doing more of them. We did stay on speaking terms and they once said, well, if you find another producer, that's fine. And then the guys of Circuform contacted me 
Yes. So how did that relationship start? They just phoned you up or emailed you or something? Yeah, that was a really odd situation. One of the guys is a total injection molding freak, nerd. And the other one is a guy who knows everything about distribution of furniture. And they came to me and they asked if they could invest in that chair and if they could make it as it was planned to be. And then I thought, uh, Aaron told me that if you find a new producer, you can have it. So it basically meant that they have to make completely new molds. They had to invest for two and a half thousand euros into molds. In the meantime, the technology of recycled plastic had changed and moved forward also. So it gave different opportunities. And we got in touch with a company in Italy who had worked out completely how you could work with recycled plastics in injection molding, but also get the whole distribution behind it, how you could deal with that. Because, you know, it's very nice to say it's made out of recycled plastic, but you have to find ways to get the plastics back and you have to find ways to clean the plastics that you want to work with. And if you want to make a chair out of the recycled material, you need to be sure that it is as strong as the chair you were producing in the first case. You know, you have to allow in the construction a certain amount of pollution so that the legs of the chair are strong enough to hold a person. It's quite a thing to create a piece where you can sit on from a recycled material. You can make a chair out of plastic and say it is recycled, but to make a chair out of recycled material and do that again and again, that's another story. Well, that's an interesting one because it seems to me, and I think you've said this in the past, that scale is quite important to you on projects like this. In other words, you're not just making, I say just, but you're not making a craft project product. You're, You're making something at an industrial scale. Yes, it is an industrial scale. And it's also, in fact, a chair is also another scale. You know, I've I have in my studio for a long time a tea from a kind of biodegradable plastic. And a tea is is something you stick in the grass and then you play golf and you hit uh, the ball. And it is nasty that it stays in the grass, but it's kind of okay that it's biodegradable. But if you want to use these kind of materials for a chair, and if you want to sit on it with a swimming suit on, that you don't want that, yeah? So you need to look at other material that is also kind of has a long life. But you also, if you make a chair, you have to have a scale where an lo- enormous amount of powers are sit- getting onto it. So you have to sit on it, which is with a T completely different because it's a small object. That is a scale. And then the other scale is, of course, also the industrial production. And for that, you need to have a really, if you want to work with these recycled plastics, you need to organize that very well behind the scenes. And the recycled plastic that I started to work with 25 years ago in Holland was a recycle scheme that is still going on. It had to do with plastics that were collected among the farmers. That's the black plastics that farmers use a lot. But this plastic that we are now using for Rex is a PA6. Uh, Normally you would call this a nylon. There are as many plastics as there are types of trees. So to collect it, you need to make sure that you get the same granules together, you know. Uh, And this is something you have to organize. The company that we worked with for the injection mold had organized that, but also uh, they knew how to get the clear purified granules, how to organize that. The nice thing was also that we were in the middle of Corona And this company was usually producing for big companies like Ikea or Decathlon. 
And in the middle of Corona times, they could not produce because the shops were closed. So they had less production. So that was our big luck that they could make the mold for us in that time and started the trials on Rex and producing it. I mean, the other interesting thing about it is there's this notion of paying a 20 euro deposit, which doesn't feel that much to me, but a 20 euro deposit, which a customer gets back when they return the chair after use. Yeah. So to do that, are they setting up deposit stations? Yes. How does that system work? Well, I have to be a little bit more clear. It is actually basically thought for the contract market. Yeah. So, and of course, if you want, there's, uh, there's ways also to get it back. But the contract market has really a distribution network on its own. And as I was mentioning, one of the guys is an expert in injection molding, but the other one is an expert in distribution and getting products into the project market, into projects with like offices or healthcare or whatever. And for that, there's all kind of distribution points used. And these distribution points are also used to get it back out of the system. So Rex is the first deposit chair, the the first Dutch deposit chair, uh, we call it. And yes, we do realize that it is pretty tricky because this chair is made for a long time, you know, so it could also go 50 years or even longer. and, And basically, we don't want them back, you could say. But the reality is also that, especially in this contract market, there are a lot of situations where Although we don't like it, the chairs do get back or get out of the system. Like an example, if you have the Olympic Games, you need offices for four years or for five years and then everything is taken down and this is another situation. And in that case, these kind of chairs, and there is a lot of other situations in the contract market where this kind of stuff is a reality. And in that case, you get your money back. Uh, Basically, the money you get is the money for the material. In a way, we we treat it as that the money you get, if we would have to buy virgin materials to produce the chair again, we would have to pay for the material. And what we do is try to keep the material in the loop. Just one thing, because if it comes back, it doesn't mean that the chairs are shredded. If they are okay, they will be cleaned and they will go back into the system again. So it depends what state the chair is in when it's returned. It can either be shredded and reused or cleaned up and... Go yeah. back into the market. Yeah. There's even situations like <sighs> people don't like the color. So then you can change the back and the base and you can change some colors and things like that. If it is actually broken or in a really bad state, then it can go back and shred it and be used again. And behind that, there is a whole thought that we, maybe I could give a very short lecture on plastics. <laughs> we are producing plastics since... 1862, which is in 160 years. And the first plastics were bioplastics, so they were celluloids. And actually, the first plastics were really chic to make things that look like ivory or Mm. uh, radios from Bacalit or whatever. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But um, when we started to mass-produce plastics, these were all these chemical plastics. And what I found an astonishing number is that We have been producing 160 years plastics and 50% of all the plastics that we have produced is produced after the year 2000. That's amazing, I think. Mm. If you look at Holland, for instance, we till about 10 years ago, and this counts for almost all the German and English and European countries, we have actually only recycled 8% of our plastics, where now it is about 18%. So there's a lot of plastics out there, and not all of it, but a lot of plastics are just burnt afterwards. 
where you could actually really reuse it again. And if you look at it as something that is burned as a valuable resource, we try basically to keep it going a little bit longer. Because can I be clear? Yeah. This chair of yours, Rex, isn't made from plastic recovered from the sea. No, 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 no. It's very fashionable, isn't it, at the moment? Yes. Sea recovered plastic. There are fishing nets, yeah, mm. that are from nylon, and you can use that. Right. But there's a very rigid system also in collecting that, because you do it over the system of the fishermen. And uh, the plastic that you basically find at the seashores or at the, at the beaches is a kind of totally degraded plastic. It's also flimsy bags. It's a kind of plastic that is so broken that you can't do much more with it often than that. There's also a lot of plastic that you can control to get back, like office furniture parts. There's fishing nets. There's plastics that ended up on waste belts or whatever that you can also filter out nowadays. We're mainly using controlled systems like the office world and the fishing net industry. Hope you're enjoying the episode. Just to let you know that the Material Matters Fair is returning to the Barge House from the 20th to the 23rd of September. Once again, each of the five floors will be doing something slightly different, but all will be related to materials. There'll also be a talks programme, some returning exhibitors, so the recycled aluminium giant Hydro will be there, as will the Wood Awards, Solid Wool, Hagen Hinderdahl and Mixed Metals, for example. And there'll be some exciting new names, such as the Tire Collective and Nova Vita Design. If you're interested in taking part, do drop me a line at hello at materialmatters.design. That's hello at materialmatters.design. You have this profound interest in furniture, Inika. Yeah. Which is interesting because it's something that maybe isn't as de rigueur as it used to be. You know, you're at the RCA when it had a furniture department, for instance, which is long, long gone. Yeah. You visit colleges now and you can spend quite a lot of time trying to track down pieces of furniture. We've had designers on here. And I think you've actually said this, that we don't need any more chairs in the world, technically, really. Did I say that? I think there's many, stu- many, many designers who say these things. Yeah, there is a big question, of course. <laughs> what kind of chairs do you still add? Yeah. But why the fascination with it? Oh, a chair is so lovely. It has a very direct connection with the human body, which is very nice. Uh, there's a lot of things also in, we talk about how society changes. For instance, if there's new upholstery materials, then it's suddenly very interesting to work with that. And that's nice on chairs. If you have, you know, look at how we have gone through Corona and suddenly all this kind of homeworking came up and suddenly we need different type of chairs for that i don't know chairs are just characters we first met properly in about 2015 i think when you're in london at the time and you set up a series of salons for which you got some funding from the dutch creativity fund yeah. i believe to investigate the future of furniture design yeah. and the changing position of the designer yeah why did you decide to do that research at that point of your career well that had very much to do that i have been working on furniture for at least at that time 20 years and i saw that things were changing, especially for furniture. Basically, things like offices were getting smaller uh, because of the costs of office spaces also. Flex workplaces came up. In a big city like London, people commute into work for a long time, which means that they also start working already on the tube, on their laptop. So the workspace and the furniture that goes with it changed a lot. We used to have offices where we had cupboards and desks and swivel chairs, and most of the desks are gone nowadays. It's stored in our computers. 
So furniture is in that perspective different. That was also one of the reasons why I went back to London, because that was also under magnifying glass that, you know, the spaces are getting more expensive and more small, which also meant that where my grandmother would have a writing desk and a dining table and a kitchen table and so on, that would all become the same table. So the table where I have my breakfast on in the morning, I open my laptop and start working on an hour later and it's all the same desk. That means that furniture changes, but also that there is less space for furniture and less money for furniture. And that we have also a generation of people who, a younger generation that is not so interested in possession anymore. Basically also they can't afford uh, classic things like houses, cars, and maybe furniture anymore. There's an abundance of secondhand stuff, which is also still working very well. Then there's the whole situation of online buying, and it all means a lot for furniture. And that means that furniture has to be designed, how it's been sold, how it's been looked at, and how it's been used was, in my opinion, changing a lot, or there were a lot of changes coming up. And that's why I wanted to look into that and wanted to go to do that in London, because as mentioned, it was for me very much under a magnifying glass. You know, in Holland, we didn't have these kind of discussions so much yet about that spaces were too expensive and too too small, but that was already going on in London for a long, long time. Yeah, so I wanted to do that not only with designers, but also with journalists, with manufacturers, with shop owners, and, and discuss all kinds of topics around furniture with more than only one species out of the furniture world. But presumably the pandemic has modified some of your findings or maybe accelerated them. Yeah, well, the online working has been totally normal now, I think. At that time, it was still a little bit exotic. You mentioned already that when I was studying, there was a furniture design course. All these kind of furniture courses have also disappeared because I think the position of furniture is, although you wouldn't say so because it's still produced a lot, we do need a little bit less of it. You know, the emphasis on furniture is less than we have. The way we deal with our houses is pimping it up with accessories a lot. So most of the courses have now turned into product design courses mm. and accessories and stuff. Yes. It doesn't necessarily feel that way when you're wandering around the Milan Design Fair or in Cologne. Nee, or, I know, I or know. Tet or, yes. yeah. I've done a bit of research on you over the oh. past well, few days, and it's very hard to find much in your background. Oh, I've seen a couple of throwaway comments about you growing up on a farm. Your parents didn't want you to go to art school. Is all that true? Uh, I didn't grow up on a farm. Ah. And my parents are from farmers, and so I was a lot with my grandparents who were basically farmers. My parents were not so keen on me going to art school. For a long time, I told my parents I wanted to become a vet. That's what they really liked, because from farmer backgrounds, this is something sensible. So what did they do if they weren't farmers? My father was, he turned out to be an architect in the end, and he designed oh. the house that I was born in. Interesting. Yes, but he started a bit as, ah, it's a long story. I, I, well, basically, he came to the village where I was born, being a kind of a jack of all trades, working at the council. And because he was good in, he had a background also in building and technology they asked him to design the new areas in the village so all kind of new houses were built in the 60s and that's where i was born but because he wasn't officially an architect after a while the rules and regulations were getting different which meant that he had to deal with everything that had to do with building but he couldn't do the architecture anymore that was how 
a country goes into more and more regulations. And and my mother was a housewife. So he was an aspiring architect in some ways. Yes. But he didn't approve of you taking a similar route. Well, no, because they didn't connect with the world of art schools. This was for them a completely weird world. Basically, if you go to art school, you end up like a junkie and with long hair and you're going down the drain. That was their perception of, of, of going to an art school. Yeah. What were you like at school? At school? Yeah. Were you good at lots of different subjects or was it always going to be art? Well, I got really into it in my secondary school. I was always making things. And this I have to mention, my father and mother, they were both really into making things. My mother was right. always making clothes, knitting. My mother actually learned me how to sew, how to cut a plank. Um, my father was always making things in his shed and doing things. And when I was really young, I was always, when I had holidays, always drawings for my father to say, can you make this table for me? And can you make this? And I was changing my room every holiday that I had. (laughs) And when I was in secondary school, I got, yeah, in Holland, they call it Handwerker. It was kind of like art courses. And I got really carried away with it. And I had a very, very, very inspiring teacher who basically triggered something. And that's when I thought I want to go to art school. And then I started in the art department. I wanted to become a sculptor because I couldn't paint, I thought. And very quickly I found out that I didn't want to be in the sculpture department because I like to think about people and how they behave and things like that. I was very short in the sculpture department. Design was immediately the option you were going to take. Yes. I think after half a year in art school, I was already in the design department. Right. And can you remember there's a moment where you were in the sculpture department and you thought, I've had enough of this. I'm going to do design instead, create furniture and things. Um, well, yes, because it wasn't really a sculpture department. It was a paint department and I couldn't paint. You know, I came from a school where I had learned a lot of theoretical stuff on, on theory on, on art as well. And, you know, a lot of people in my class were very into just making art and they were not interested in the theory. And I liked all that kind of stuff. I liked to know things as well. And um, that seemed to be kind of more going on in the design department. But there were also in the workshops at the time, there were some people working, students who were inspiring as well. And they also became kind of the forerunners of what's was very important later on in the Dutch design world as well. So we came up to Droog at one point, but um, before that there were also some other kind of movements in Holland. And these people who were in that, they were in the workshops at the time that I was uh, at art school and I thought, this is what I like. I like this vibe. I like the stuff that they are discussing. And then he came to London. Yes. After you finished at Arnhem to the Royal College of Art. Why did you decide to do that? Oh, well, when I came out of art school, I had quite a lot of exhibitions, but didn't realize that that happened a lot with people who just come out of art school and that the second year is a different cup of tea. But it was not going too bad. And I had done an internship also in Holland with a Czech designer called Borzek Šipek, who was at that time quite well known. He worked also with Vitra and companies like that. Now people don't know so much about him anymore. He's quite postmodern, wasn't he? Yes, yes, very yeah. postmodern indeed. I had three options. I thought I can go on as I do 
now and and you know see how where this leads me being out of art school and having a few exhibitions and just see the other one was that shipek had offered me a job so after one and a half year i thought i can take that job and do that but i also had the feeling this is a kind of postmodernism which is not my thing so i want to go and look at my own thing once more And then I thought that there were, for me, two options. One was the Domus Academy in Milan, but that was 10 months. And I had to learn Italian and I couldn't do that. Uh, and then there was the Royal College of Art, which I found out about. And I thought, maybe this is interesting. Because that was, at that time, also advertised a little bit more as a course on industrial production, theory production, things like that. And because I came from a very conceptual more art kind of way of making furniture and products. I thought this is maybe a very good choice for me. Mm. What was it like coming to London in the mid-90s? Presumably Britpop was having its moment, the YBAs were in yeah. full flight. Uh, well, I didn't have much money, so I didn't have lots of opportunities to go around too much. I was basically cycling in every day on my bicycle and bringing my own bread and <laughs> just hoping that I <laughs> could manage three months at the RCA. Because I didn't have more money than that to survive. Uh, but um, it was nice. I had a good class of people. I had a good group. I studied with um, Chris Martin, who was now doing mass productions. And I studied with Tomoko Azumi. And the world. it was a very nice group that I was in. Mm. But in the Netherlands, of course, yeah. Droog, Droog, I mean, arguably the most influential design movement of the decade was kicking off when, and you weren't part of it. Did that bother you? Well, that was also one of the things why I left Holland uh, is that the situation in Holland was pretty difficult also to get into companies or whatever with your furniture. So this was also one of the reasons why I thought if I go on like I do now, that it is pretty clear that it's not so easy to get this going as a designer. And at that time, there were more designers uh, who were trying to find other ways, like Pita and Eiki had been also trying his things. And during the time that I was in London studying, Droog Design came up. So some of these people who did stay in Holland, they were joined together by Gijs Bakker and René Ramakers. Uh, they started with Theo Remy and uh, Pita and Eik and Jürgen Bij and made a show. Ibert Dreisma was part of it. And from that, it went further. But no, I was never part of it. And now I'm okay. But for a long time, that was also sometimes, yeah, this was also difficult because if I was a Dutch designer being in Milan or whatever, and, and people say, oh, you're a Dutch designer. Uh, are you part of Droog as well? And I would have to say no. They would look at me like, well, a Dutch designer of a certain age, there must be something wrong with her. <laughs> so I found, I was feeling a bit uncomfortable about it for a while, but I'm pretty happy where I am now. And I'm yeah, yeah. very happy that I manage everything on my own. You described yourself in a piece in One Office. You said you were a lone cowboy. Yeah. I wonder if you thrive on that sense of independence, that being outside of some uh, established organizational group, that you quite enjoy that actually. I do. Yes, maybe you're right. Maybe I was also not so good in adapting. We started to say that I was a critical designer, but the, my, my basic first question is always why? And uh, why should I be part of it? I'm always a bit critical also to jump into big news. I'm, I'm always thinking, well, I have to find out myself first what I think of this. 
So that means sometimes that you're not in the big major things and jump on the bandwagon because if everyone jumps on the bandwagon, I'm I'm usually jumping off. <laughs> you did work for three years at Habitat. Yes. And I'm wondering, what did you learn from that experience? Well, it was actually a super good experience for me. It was also for me clear from the start that I did not want to work there forever. But I learned a lot about, as I was mentioning, I wanted to go also to the Royal College of Art to learn more about industrial production. And that is something that I did learn there a lot. I also learned to work very quick uh, because, you know, the situation was there that we would work on the summer collections and on the winter collections and bring out a lot of furniture. I would basically have three months and then we I would start with 60 concept sketches on furniture for the winter collection. And by the end of the three months, there would be eight or 10 uh, that were drawn up into perfect drawings and made into prototypes in three different ways in three different areas in the world. And also look at collections. What could you, what is it now and what does it need? What is the gap? What do you, uh, why bring out another chair like that, but maybe think around the corner and think of something else that is an addition instead of another same thing. Sounds like a tremendous churn. Did that persuade you to follow your own path? It sounds like a tremendous churn. You were churning out a lot of work. Yes, yes. I churned out a lot of work. That's true. So that's what I learned a lot also. But it was actually, it has been really good for me. But it was clear that I didn't want to do that forever. I, I always thought I want to do my own stuff. I want to do my own work. So the first year I was so completely numbed or just dead by all the work that I had to do. And also overwhelmed by the work and the type of work at Habitat that I didn't manage to have much time to do my own things. But in the last of the years... I brought out my ordinary furniture and uh, showed that in London, in the tram shed of all places. Which is where Vitra now has its showroom. Yes, and where there was this restaurant. And at that time, it was a very uh, empty, scruffy place. Mark Hicks used it as a restaurant, that's right, with Damien Hirst's sculptures in there. So I had my first exhibition in there. I organized it myself there. Reading all the research about you, there are a couple of phrases that crop up reasonably regularly. One is that your pieces often have a, a toy-like quality. I know you're very interested in pictograms and, I guess, archetypes, so perhaps that's where that comes from. And the second that your work, and, and maybe you personally, is down-to-earth. Would you agree with both those things? Well, yes, I like clearness. Pictogram has been very nice for me because, yes, in the beginning, certainly, my work was almost like extruded pictograms. But um, I like the clearness of it. You know, in a way, furniture also has to, or furniture and products, has to communicate. So people need to know what to do with things. And that's what I love about pictograms. So if I get out of an airplane in Sweden or in Shanghai or in Holland, which hardly happens nowadays anymore because we're not flying anymore. But, um, you know, you know your way out through pictograms. And I love that kind of stuff. It is a kind of communal storage that we have in the back of our minds, how we recognize things, how we know that something is 45 centimeters high and you can sit on it. Uh, There's a kind of something that you can play with as a designer. And down to earth, yes, I think that also suits me very well. I think it has to do with my background of farmers. And your dad building everything. And my dad building everything. Yeah, yeah. 
Tell me, are there products that you designed early in your career that you wouldn't design now? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, there are. Oh, I'm still very happy about these ordinary tables. Well, the work that I graduated with in Arnhem, I would not do anymore. It's too much. It's too decorative. Maybe too much sheepek as well. Right. At the same time, you know, times change, I change, and I don't want to make my heart a murder pit and say, well, this is absolutely ridiculous. You have to see it in the time that it came across or came about. Mm. You've investigated different ways of production, um, and that seems to be an important part of your work. You've worked with fishermen on Foggo Island off the coast of Canada to create craft-based furniture, help revive a community. You've also done a project with OpenDesk where your designs can be uploaded and made anywhere in the globe. Yeah. So what's next? Now I'm working on some interiors. Actually, I'm working on an interior for a big museum here in Holland with Unstudio, the architect Ben van Berkel. Yep. But I'm also working on a house, and the house has a footprint of 1850. And it is for a special place in Holland, a museum again, but this time an open-air museum, where they have a house of 1850, which you could say 1850 is the starting point of our, what we nowadays, the Anthropocene is such a hot word. Right. Huh? But mm. in that same museum, there's also a holiday house of Gerrit Rietveld in 1950. Who is your big hero, right? Yes, he's my big hero. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, both houses are off-grid. And I'm working on an off-grid house for 2050 where different types of scenarios of living can be taken place in that small house. But in the house are also all kinds of objects that inform us about the footprint of maybe cooking in 1850, 1950, now and 2050. So it learns us all kind of things about, like, for instance, how we deal with water. Nowadays, people have still the habit of showering every day. In 1850, uh, people were uh, going into a bath uh, once a week, and it was the same water as your brother and sisters were in as well. And for 2050, that might be different. The way we dealt with our waste or furniture in 1850 1950 or now and in 2050 is also quite interesting. You know, we then, in very small cottages, houses where people were living normal lives, you would have secondhand furniture of extremely rich people from the 17th century in a small hut house from 1850. The house of 1850 is a house where fishermen used to live and they were making a fire in their living room on the floor actually, and their smoke would also make their fishing nets much stronger. But they died also much quicker because that was a very unhealthy situation. In 1950, we used coal. Nowadays, we have different ways of heating. And in 2050, it's different again. Every time all kind of aspects of living are connected, stories are told about the situations in those times. So you're designing all this? I'm designing on this. I'm researching on that with right. uh, some people from the museum. But we are also designing the whole system, the whole house where you can go through. Okay. I'm fascinated to know how many showers we'll be taking in 2050. Can you reveal that? Is this an exclusive? Well, uh, we might go back to washing yourself only with a washing cloth uh, just once every morning at the sink. I don't know. It's a project that I really enjoy because it's, it's about footprints. And it's not only about the ecological footprint, but also the sociological footprints. 
it also demythologizes in a way sometimes that everything in the past was so much better, you know. Mm. Yes, we used everything to the last bit and bone. But it's also about, it's a long story. It's a very complex thing, but we try to bring that down to a pictogram in the end, yeah? Right. So that's why I like pictograms, because it's a complex thing, what I'm working on, but I have to bring it down to something that narrows it down and makes it digestible. And when is this slated to open? 2024. Okay. So we look out for it next year. Yes. Very exciting. Inika, our time is up. Thank you very much for your time. Appreciate that. I really enjoyed myself. Yeah. It was nice to speak to you as well again. Oh, good. Yeah. I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> and it took so long to get there, but it was worth it in the end, I hope. Yeah. Good. Thanks very much, Inika. Okay. Thank you. To learn more about Inika, go to inikahands.com. As ever, there are images from the interviews on our Instagram page, materialmatters.design, and you can find all the podcasts that I've done, sign up to our newsletter, and lots of other stuff at materialmatters.design. Finally, this is really important too. If you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. And it would make me incredibly happy if you went to my Patreon page and made a pledge at patreon.com forward slash material matters. For as little as £2.50 a month, you can receive exclusive posts, blogs and thoughts from yours truly, as well as getting access to each episode before it's published to the wider world. Material Matters is a completely independent concern and any help you can offer would be hugely appreciated. Ultimately, you'll be helping to take the message of the importance of material, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. I'm away next week, so there'll be a very short break before I come back with designer and artist Paul Coxage. Thanks very much for listening.